Hello, and welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 76. I'm Kay, here with my co-host, Taz. Hello. Today we'll be discussing the 10th episode of season 4, Coup by Clam. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of Coup by Clam. The crew is examined by a sketchy doctor to make sure that they don't have space madness, a disease that makes the locals very nervous. When the doctor gives them clams that cause them to be linked, they have to go down to the planet to deal with a political coup while also trying to fund the ransom. So this is a somewhat pedestrian Alien of the Week episode. That's basically a pit stop gone wrong through no fault of the crew. So they need this radiation filter for Moya, which is why they stopped at this one habited planet that actually knows what a Leviathan is and can fix it for them. And they're basically having a custom screening with the doctor, making sure no one's sick with the space madness, who then turns out to be a real jerk. And they really just want to get food, get the mechanics, stay on the ship and stay on the ship until the work is done and then leave. But the doctor that's screening them is really shady and gives them these clams, these mollusks that cause them to be psychically linked to each other, which of course is a degenerative condition that will kill them if they don't pay him money to give them the, the cure. The crew is not best pleased by this. <laughs> there is a lot of drawing <laughs> of weapons on this doctor who is their only solution to the problem. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of one of those episodes that like, it's fun in a lot of ways. And I think that I didn't really thoroughly examine it the first time I watched it. Mm -hmm. And then this time through, I think a lot of things kind of came up as I was watching it that I was like, hmm, I don't know that this was the best choice they would have made. Or I don't know that this is the choice they would have made if this episode was made in 2018 versus, I don't know, whenever it was made, like, 2003 2003 2002 yeah somewhere in there but yeah it's a it's an it's just a little one-off episode monster of the week alien of the week thing they have a problem they have to solve it and there's there's two tropes that come up and the the mollusk part of it is the psychic link which we also saw in ienge yuyench at the end of season three with the bracelets and then this part of the solution to this problem spoilers we're going to go ahead and give you the end game of the episode right now but uh, the doctor procured these detrimental mollusks by finding out that the female revolutionaries on the planet who want to use them to kill important people and basically extorting them out of out of the revolutionary so that he could use them just to get money. So he, he's extorting it out of this all-female revolutionary because the planet is very sexist. And so part of the solution is to do cross-dressing to infiltrate the female revolutionaries in order to find the mollusks and get part which they need for the cure. So it's it's yeah. got this whole whole misogyny culture critique going on and cross-dressing and uh, we have both female to male cross-dressing and male to female cross-dressing going on. And the way that's handled is just a little cringeworthy as a woman watching it, Yeah, I guess is the way to put it. I don't know. Yeah, I think cringeworthy is a good way of describing my reaction to it. I think a couple of things. I think that, number one, the cross-dressing is not really done that well. Do you know what I mean? And, and as an example, after the doctor leaves, a mechanic and an officer come on board the ship. And the officer is there to scan for something. I don't know. He's just there. And yeah, he's just there. He's <laughs> and there to provide plot. Yeah, he's there for plot reasons, which again, like you're kind of like, he's not providing security to the engineer. So you're kind of like, why are you here? Mm -hmm. You know, kind of feeling. The mechanic, though, is very clearly a woman. Mm -hmm. Like, and this actually reminded me a lot of, there's this Star Trek Next Generation episode where there's a culture and I think that they don't have gender. Right, they don't have gender. And it's like an aberration if you feel one way or the other about it. Yeah. And then Riker ends up sleeping with one of them because he's Riker. And it's kind of like, oh, she secretly has female feelings or she secretly has like sex feelings. I can't remember what the thing is. She see, she feels like a woman. Yeah. She feels female. Yeah. And it was kind of interesting because later on, the actor actually playing Riker was kind of like, you know, it really would have been more interesting if we'd done it with a male, mm -hmm. like if we'd done it with like 
a a character that felt male and then they kind of had that that liaison yeah you know and like my feeling here was kind of like were we ever supposed to believe she was a man like the engineer because she comes in and it just looks like a woman with short hair yeah like her face is very feminine like you know that soft curve with the jaw and like yeah exactly and but then she's immediately identified as male dargo says to chiana hey, stick with him, don't let him out of your sight. And it's like, so it's all like telegraphed. When the reveal happens, it's not really a surprise. So, and actually that was like the most confusing part for me was because he's like, stick with him. So I assumed that he meant the military officer mm-hmm. who was actually a male actor. I don't know. I just found this very confusing. It was, and then and then it's like, oh, she's secretly a cross-dresser. Okay. And I'm like, if you've seen Coffee Prints, like mm-hmm. the the K drama, I'm like, you know <laughs> that there's a way to like have a female like have a female actress who is very pretty and have them look like a boy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Have them look male. And so I'm like, the fact that they couldn't do it was kind of like, okay, well, you know, whatever. But then also like later, John and Rigel have to cross dress, and I'm like. Okay, I'm not a huge fan of RuPaul's Drag Race because we don't have cable, but <laughs> I am like, um, I have seen some men like that get real gussied up and whatever they did to like Ben Browder, I'm like, this was not even pretending to pass. So I could definitely, definitely take the point about the the mechanic being like, why wasn't that done better? Why was it, didn't she appear male better? But if you look in the universe with the Watsonian explanation that Rigel and John have to dress themselves up as women and the, the way they do it kind of sucks, that kind of works out inside the narrative of the, of the thing because, you know, John is spotted and he is identified as a man. Anyway, we'll get to all the plot details in a minute. We just kind of had to get this off our chest first. But yeah, it is kind of a, a shoddy job and the kind of the tropes that they go with, I don't know, it's just the whole why is it that when whenever narrative stories or tv stories do the men have to dress up like women they're always like so so femme it's like Erin is right there she is wearing leather pants and like not dressed up in a dress and i know there's a little bit of a plot element to that in this one that it makes sense but at the same time it's like why does it always have to go for oh you have to put a man in a dress kind of deal and it's just like yeah it's so tired I think tired is like a good word for it. And also there are shows that have done it in like a less patronizing way, I think. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where even when it's for plot reasons, it's like they actually look like they have tried. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, I I don't know. I think that like the drive-by element of this like cross-dressing is also kind of hand in hand with what's like an actual issue going on right now which is kind of like male chauvinism and male power and there's like this like kind of subplot where like the women are completely subservient and completely like Mm -hmm. they're completely under the thumb of the men and do you mean the women on the planet yeah the women on the planet sorry not the women of farscape because (laughs) well i just want to clarify because then there's a narrative thing that i want to get to after you finish your point yeah and so i i think that my issue with that is that it's done in such a kind of like casual manner. And I get that this whole season, the whole thing has kind of been like, the crew doesn't care. Like, sure, go steal from them. The crew doesn't care, you know, or like, <laughs> you know, we we don't care what's going on with your political stuff. We just want food and water, you know? And so yeah. I get that that's been kind of like a theme ongoing for this whole season. But at the same time, I'm also kind of like, so they really don't care at all. That, like, the John of season one, let's have a revolution against, you know, the Friday. Thank God it's Friday. Yeah. That, that John is just all of a sudden, like, sure, whatever. We don't care that women are, like, oppressed in your society. Yeah. I think that's definitely an interesting point about where the crew has come from. And the scope of that what they do care about has narrowed so very much to like just the crew like they've gone through so much the terrible trials and tribulations and they're just trying to survive and they just really don't have the brain space or the cope to deal with other people's problems and i kind of like that i think it's i think that's what i like about it as a show with farscape where that they move away from that and it is an evolution away from that of like 
as we saw, as you mentioned, thank God it's Friday again, some other early episodes of like, can we help these people? You even have Zan trying to help the boy in the throne for a loss and like trying to make his life better and she can't. And so it's like all this thwarting of how much can this one ragtag group of people bring change to a society or another community. And it's very much the anti-Star Trek model. Mm -hmm. Like in Star Trek, that's what they do. You have the ship, they go down to a planet, they make a situation better nine times out of ten. Whereas Farscape, they usually don't make things better. Sometimes they make it worse. Like different destinations comes to mind in early season three when they go down and they change history for the worse. And, you know they are not the saviors of the universe. They really aren't. They're just this group of ragtag people and that's the limits of what they can do. And I think just emotionally, kind of drawing on my own experience with being in difficult, stressful situations, it's really hard to care about other things when you yourself are going through a really hard, stressful situation. And I think that is kind of the mode that's played out. And it is, I think, a response of the show Two shows like Star Trek and Stargate, which is on the air at the same time, and the whole sci-fi genre of you're on a ship and we go help people. Well, this is a ship of people who aren't helping people. Mm-hmm. I I like that as kind of seeing Farscape as a reflection of that as kind of the reality of how people actually live their lives versus you know the Gene Roddenberry idealized future. And I think that yeah, yeah that's a really good point. And and I'm not saying I have a problem with it. I'm also just saying that I think that as a trope and as kind of the background, I did have a problem with the way this show did like, oh, they're going to have this coup and they're going to do it yeah. kind of semi-violently but not that violently because they're just going to take out the bad people. And then at the same time, it really portrays these like revolutionary women as kind of the bad guys. Like for the last yeah. half of the show, they are the bad guys. Yeah. Well, they actually are never portrayed as as the good guys. They are always they are antagonistic towards the crew. Yeah. From the from the start. Yeah, that's a good point. And then I think that the reason I have issues with that is because you look at shows that aired, you know, granted, I think Battlestar Galactica was almost a decade later, but, you know, Battlestar Galactica, mm, which by the 2003. Ballast, really? Oh. Yeah. Battlestar Galactica, the new version, aired in 2000, started in 2003. You know what? You're right. Because I was watching it in high school. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay. Early college. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> you're getting back to this and... In, in like season, I want to say season three or four of Battlestar Galactica when they're on New Caprica, they actually do have this whole plot line about like how far people will go as revolutionaries and at what point, you know, a revolutionary stops being a cause you can root for because of the extremes they're willing to go, to, you know, towards. And mm -hmm. I think that that's like an element that the show is almost playing with by portraying these revolutionaries as bad guys. But like the fact that they never have kind of a, this is why they're doing it. Yeah. Well, they have a, they have a very basic, this is why they're doing that. Women are the second class citizens and they are sick of it. And they are going to kill the high men in government and take over and take power. And it's definitely, I think part of it, what makes me uncomfortable with it is that it's not, it's basically it's going to be okay then the women are going to be on top and the men are going to be second classes since that's kind of the implication of how this is going to turn over so there's not going to be actually any kind of leveling or reconciliation or building a new future with men and women equal which is what the modern feminist movement is more about of you know bringing up both men and women so people no one's left behind and at least that's the idealized version of it mm -hmm. so part of my discomfort with it also is is just the way it's just like so ham-fisted there's no nuance to it yeah it's a, another star trek episode the society that has the women being historically the ones who are strong and physically bigger and they have this whole matriarchal society and where the men are the weaker of the two and, and stuff like that mm -hmm. and that's like that's it feels like this coup is going to set up that situation where it's not going to solve any actual problems and it's endlessly going to be this war of the sexes and I don't know. That's the part I I didn't care for. On the other hand, I kind of like that the the women of, of the revolution don't like the strangers of who have come from a spaceship and out of space outer space and said they're suspicious of them and they could ruin their plans. Like I get that they're being protective of their own movement and I kind of respect them for that. And I like that the show took 
I don't want to say take took the risk, but made the women be villains because sometimes women are not allowed to be villains in the same way mm-hmm. that men are, and especially this revolutionary movement, which where we should be on their side because ooh, revolutionaries they're going to make society better. But you have this situation where we don't actually care for their cause in the same way other than me as a viewer, as a woman, wanting equal treatment in society. Yeah, that's great. But the way it's shown is is a twist on how it would might otherwise be shown. Yeah. So it's kind of this uncomfortable thing. And I'm not, I'm not sure how much of it is like discomfort with the topic and where it might lead to or how it, the actual execution of it in the show is done or or what yeah so i don't know it's it's a mixed it's a mixed thing and i think i bring a lot to it as a viewer that gets mixed in as well yeah i think that all of those are really good points and they really echo kind of how i'm feeling in terms of just this like underlying semi discomfort i guess with how it was portrayed like how it actually yeah. came out you know what yeah. i mean and i think that if they had done it in any other way, if it had been like the, oh, if it had been like, you know, even that that episode um, with not the ugly truth, but the one where Zan goes on trial. Dream a little dream. Dream a little dream. If it had been like dream a little dream where it was like, okay, people that are blonde are second class citizens or I forget what it was. I think it was mm-hmm. people that were blue eyed or something like that. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 wait. No, 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 never mind. It was... It wasn't blue-eyed. Blue-eyed was just sensitive. It was the lawyers and everybody else. (laughs) Yeah, it was the lawyers versus everybody else. So if it had been, like, something like that, where it's, like, the lawyers versus everybody else, or, like, some scare kind of, like, high class, low class, like, something like that, I think that I would have been more kind of, like, willing to just go with it. But I think Mm -hmm. that it was that in an episode where Aaron tries to say girl power... You have, like, mm-hmm. this whole subplot where women are literally, like, torturing other women that I'm kind mm-hmm. of, like, eh, I don't know. Something about it just rang kind of, like, re- hit Off. me wrong. Yeah. Yeah. This is the other point that I was going to bring up is narratively within the episode, for an episode that's supposed to be about, you know, women revolutionaries being the central part of it, you have the choice to make Aaron and Sukozu the victims and the maidens in distress. <laughs> You know, yeah, they're the ones who are captured and tortured, and then the boys have to come rescue them. And it's, you know, from a storytelling perspective, yes, Aaron should be the one and going to make contact with the women. She's also a woman. You know, that kind of thing. It it makes sense, but you're still doing the storytelling trope of oh, the women I got captured, boys have to go rescue them. You know, yeah. go undercover and rescue them. So there's that going on. And I think when you, you mentioned the girl power thing, I think that's the thing that bugs me the most about John's reaction to all of this, which is really kind of the viewer's access point to episodes is through John's point of view. And just his approach to it all was really what turned me off of the whole way that the episode was executed by the producing team. Right? Yeah. Because it's like girl power is it's so patronizing in a lot of ways and it's i don't know it's a very loaded kind of term and maybe this is me reacting as an older mm-hmm. adult now and this is you know 20 years after this first aired but even in the late 90s it's still kind of like oh we have to we have to dress things up in pink because the girls are going to be in charge today you know it is just mm-hmm. like there's something really patronizing about his attitude towards the whole situation. Yeah. Well, and I think that there are ways that it could have been the other way. Like, for example, if John and Rigel, for example, had been not completely incapacitated yet, like maybe Aaron was still getting like really, really bad stomach cramps. So she was kind of willing to sit the first part out and then John Mm -hmm. and Rigel get captured. Do you know what I mean? And then that would actually have the benefit of making the woman's immediate antagonism towards Sokozu and Aaron, but in this case, in an, in my imagined episode, it would be John and Rigel. You know, like <laughs> yeah. that would make it make more sense because they'd be like, "Hey, they're clearly spies. They're men." You know, yeah. Versus yeah. like with Aaron and Sokozu, where I'm like, they're coming to you cash in hand. You know, they yeah. literally are trying to give you money. I'm not saying trust them, but I'm also saying Aaron wouldn't have her back to somebody and get knocked out by a pipe. Right. I right. don't know. Yeah, that was that was the other part was like they're surrounded immediately and there's no precautions. But, you know, they have to make the episode work the way I guess they wanted to make it work. 
Yeah. So all that said, we have spent 20 minutes discussing the episode that we haven't even talked about yet (laughs) in its details. So we hope you watched it. Basically, we have the setup, as we said, the doctor has given the mollusks to them. If the mollusks, there's what, a purple one, yellow one, and a green one. Mm -hmm. And if one person eats one half of one, another person eats the other, they get psychically linked. So our pairs are Aaron and Rigel, Mm -hmm. John and Sokozu, and poor Dargo is tethered to Norianti. <laughs> I think that one might be the, the most discomforting one. Sharp-eyed friend of the podcast, Jason on Twitter, noticed that this is the first time we see it mentioned again that Sakozu only eats 10 times a year. And so she's eating a giant meal. Whereas everybody else is kind of tepidly eating the mollusks, she is like chowing down. Chiana and Scorpius are the only ones who have not eaten. And so Chiana uh, takes charge of the people on Moya, the mechanic and the officer. And also during that time period, Scorpius is walking around with the officer and he gets the, oh, women are bad, men are good vibe from him. So he's getting some information. Mm -hmm. And Aaron, initially Aaron, Dargo and John go down to the planet to confront the doctor and get the cure. They're hoping by like beating it out of him. And he's like, I'm the only one with the cure. So the first quote I want to play is from that early scene that explains the mollusks. And there's just the classic reactions you get from our crew as the the guy is trying to talk to them is what I want to talk about. Killing me kills you. May I speak? No. Cure first, speak later. Oh, put those away. <laughs> I promise you I can't be forced to cure you. And the, the cure is on my own uh, devising. You won't find it elsewhere. Let me explain the cradle mollusk. Please don't. We give up. We'll pay. Each mollusk harbors one colony of neurally linked bacteria, and each colony acts as one organism. So much so that if the mollusk is halved, its bacteria alternately transmit each half's sensations to the other half. Why? Who cares? Take the money, cure us. Now that the bacteria has colonized your bodies, they're communicating your emotional states to force you to merge. The problem is you are not mollusks. It's never been a problem for us before. It is now. Your bodies, unlike the mollusk halves, can never merge. And so your symptoms worsen. And eventually the strain kills you. All right, we understand. To fix it. We'll pay double if you shut up. <laughs> I'll break your neck if you don't. So this is how Farscape does Technobabble in this episode. And... I really like it. And this is, again, a response, I think, to how Star Trek does Technobabble, where they have these long-winded explanations that everyone cares about and is invested in, and they really want to know why things are happening. And here you have them several times, Aaron, Dargo, and John, all breaking in to say, shut up, we don't care, just fix the problem for us, while the verbose doctor who has them at his mercy just keeps talking about how these work. So from a technical standpoint, you have... The show telling the audience what's going on while the characters don't care what's going on. And I really like that Farscape does that. That's one of the things I do really like about this episode, that you really get that sense of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the sense of like, we don't care. Let's just move on. Which is interesting because I feel like as an episode, that's how this whole episode is. Like, we don't care. Let's just move on. And I feel like it's a nice contrast to like the losing time episode where like so much time was spent being like, what's happening? Like, let's spend a lot Mm -hmm. of the episode figuring out what's going on before we do the reveal. Like this episode reveals the bad guy literally before the credits, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They're not shy about that. But it's but because they're the solution is where everything comes together and is actually, you know, that's what they're turning on is is their the solution is where all the problems are mm-hmm. right yeah. they know what the solution is but then 
they know what they need to do. They need to get more mollusks that match the colors so that he can make an antidote. And he only has the purple one. And we get a lot of comedy in between as they're trying to make this solution work by recovering the other mollusks. And then on top of that, they have to rescue Aaron and Sokozu and, you know, all those complications that crop up. Yeah. So the Dargo and Noranti comedy in this episode actually is pretty funny. Like, unlike with Iench, Yench, where pretty much you only feel like pain. Well, and also none of the characters really felt pleasure. Noranti feels some pleasure. And there's a super uncomfortable scene where Dargo <laughs> is also experiencing Noranti's extreme pleasure. And everybody gets really uncomfortable as they have to like watch Dargo go through this. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, this this is one of those episodes that does not shy away from sex, bodily fluids and masturbation, because Noranti is like testing things out in the kitchen, in her laboratory, in the kitchen, because that's where her lab is. And she's got a shaker table going. And so she starts pleasing herself on the shaker table while she's up on the ship and Dargo is down in the room. And it is really uncomfortable to watch, but it's also got this little bit of Noranti is really weird and crazy and, you know, don't want to be associated with her just because she's so embarrassing yeah. kind of thing going on. And so at the end of it, they do get the vial of whatever they need from the purple stuff from the doctor to prove that the cure works. And Dargo goes back up to the ship and Dargo is like, <laughs> we have an on-screen person peeing, which is Noranti peeing into a bucket, mm -hmm. which is like not exactly what I wanted to see, but it's Farscape, so they go there. And I just want to play the next little bit because for the byplay because Dargo is always really funny, and even when he's pissed off, haha, <laughs> pissed. Yeah. <laughs> Take it, drink it. Why do you hesitate? What do you think? Would you rather die than drink it? Okay. So we should be touching while we drink this. Oh, so you said. Bare skin to bare oh. skin. Ah, yeah, yeah. Not that much bare skin. But I, I would have thought that the more contact... The doctor said you. Oh, yes. Less skin. <sighs> Here's to you. Did it work? No. Test it. Okay. Oh! Was that absolutely necessary? Oh, one little pop. <gasps> oh! oh, I just got a fright. I, I didn't feel anything. It's working. So, yeah, so I don't know if we explained. They have to drink each other's pee after they have the the serum. <laughs> and then they have to be touching. And Dargo's like, no, keep your clothes on. Because Norianti is already completely 100% ready to strip down naked right there to hug Dargo. <laughs> and then to test it, Dargo, of course, punches her. <laughs> Which is just like so Dargo for like revenge for everything that she's put him through in the last half hour. That's hilarious. Yeah, and so you have this, like, kind of great moment of them realizing that then they have to hold hands for, like, an extended period of time. <laughs> and Norahanti, like, there's actually this kind of interesting moment because, like, she's such a funny character and she kind of looks at Dargo and she's like, I'm really glad we get to spend this time together alone. Like, I've been really looking forward to getting to know you one-on-one. -on -one. And, like, for Dargo, it's like, no... You are the roommate that I hate the most. I hate you more than, like, Rigel. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then later on in the episode, she's fallen asleep on top of him. And he is thirsty and trying to, like, force bring his drink to him. Like, an actual drink, not pee drink. And it's not working and he's just stuck with her. But to Dargo's credit, he doesn't wake her up and then force her to go get the drink for him. You know, he lets her sleep on him for probably just to keep her asleep and not talking but you know mm -hmm. there's a little bit of, of that compassion in there to just let her let her sleep i've been thinking that i really do think that since in season three dargo did a ton of growth mm -hmm. i know a lot of season three was him and john bickering at each other but i also feel like as a character 
Dargo has done a ton of growth. I don't know if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but this episode yeah. and the last one, even though they've been one-offs, I feel like we've seen the Dargo the captain. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like, he's really settled into the role as captain very easily, and he wears the command naturally. And if you could contrast that with how he was in the beginning of season one, when he's like, I'm the Luxon, I'm the one who should be in charge, and he goes around giving orders and shouting at people, and here he's much more laid back about his authority, you Mm -hmm. know? He, like, at the beginning when Shiana kind of steps in because everyone's having, like, physical pains because of their partner, um, you have him basically going up to her afterwards saying good cover now here's what i need you to do help me out here yeah you know it's it's very much uh he's just settling into the role really well we saw that in uh prefect murder last time too when he was negotiating with the leader Mm -hmm. as well yeah I think that's a good I think that's a good comparison. As we said, Chiana's staying on the ship with the mechanic who is again like I'm not sure why we were supposed to think it was a man, <laughs> but whatever, you know, okay. And so she actually ends up confronting the mechanic and kind of being like, "Hey, why are you cross-dressing?" except she says, "Why the sex change?" which was actually a little bit confusing because like yeah. the woman is not and this is like the really weird part to me is that Chiana like tears open her shirt and the woman just has her boobs out and I was kind of like why isn't she binding her breasts if she is trying to pass as a but I'm not going to get into the cross-dressing thing we already discussed that I think <laughs> they could have chosen a, a different way of doing it <laughs> it's it's a shorthand right it's a shorthand for Oh, boobs, clearly female, right? And they never even get into any kind of transgender discussion. It's strictly cross-dressing. She feels like a woman. She's dressing as a man because that's the only way she can be a mechanic. And I think there's a lot of visual shorthand going on, plus not necessarily thinking it through on the heart of the writers. But yeah, but what really got me about that scene was that Chiana's so aggressive about it, Mm -hmm. you know? And she's jumping her. And yeah, she thinks she's a spy, but... I don't know. Does that seem like something Chiana would do or would she try and angle it from a from a different perspective if it were a man or does she suspect or I mean, she clearly suspects it's a woman. But why would that make her think that the person is a spy? Yeah, I think that this was out of character for Chiana and they kind of did it for the plot reasons because we've actually explicitly seen Chiana not do something like that in the past. Like when when they caught that ship of other escaped prisoners and there was Mm -hmm. the Nabari on board and then Chiana was incredibly protective of um, her I think because it was I think it was a I I forget what the androgynous androgynous yeah it was like an androgynous Nabari and Chiana was incredibly protective you know and so I just don't see the Chiana that's kind of like hey have sex with who you want do what you want you know sexual liberation that's why we escaped nabari in the first place being like what's up with the cross-dressing you know mm-hmm. especially because scorpius pinged so quickly to like the misogyny you know what i mean yeah like scorpius like yeah. like literally a couple minutes earlier we have scorpius just walking down the hallway with the military dude and the military dude's like oh the ship is a female and literally just off of his tone scorpius is immediately like but the pilot is male and the pilot has complete controls. You know, so it's like pretty yeah. obvious what's going on. Yeah. I mean, and you do see Chiana become protective later because the short time that we spend with the mechanic and Chiana, they do start having a rapport that grows between them with Chiana asking questions about it, trying to understand what's going on on the planet, having sympathy for it, you know, saying Nabari is worse. And... And then when uh, they're overheard by Mekin, the military dude, and Scorpius, who are coming to check on them, you know, and he finds out, oh, from that conversation that the mechanic is a woman, Chiana does step between the two of them mm-hmm. and basically be like, you know, don't touch her. You know, she is under my protection now. So she does get that protective thing. That protectiveness does come later on. It's just... The way she approaches it in that first scene where she's just like being super aggressive and ripping into her, it makes me wonder if it's a consequence of the really aggressive pointiness that Yui saw in Chiana in Crichton Kicks, Mm. where she comes back from being, you know, off on her own, probably bad stuff happened to her, maybe and possibly including rape, and she's really aggressive with Sukozu, and this kind of is reminiscent of that kind of behavior. 
Yeah. I would buy that. Yeah, I would definitely Maybe buy that. Maybe it's growing out of that. So Yeah. And then speaking of Scorpius, so after as the as Meekin comes down the ladder and he's a like he's revealing the woman and he's like, Oh, I'm gonna call this in and like this is gonna be a big deal and I'm arresting you. Scorpius literally just comes down the ladder after him and then like murder balls him by like snapping his neck, which I'm like, go Scorpius. <laughs> and this is I, I think that this episode has a couple of moments with Scorpius where Scorpius is shown to be protective. Not just of John, although mostly of John, like because you could see mm-hmm. him protecting the crew as him protecting John, but it is kind of him protecting people who are not John, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he has this little great little line where where the mechanic says, "You just killed Mekin," and he's like, "Get back to work, fixing Moya, putting the filter back in." And he's so calm about it too, and it's very much reminded me of Command Carrier Scorpius when he was in complete control of peacekeepers. And he's just like, you have a job to do, and that is to fix this ship, and that is my primary concern. So go do it, and I'm happy to murder people on your behalf so that you can do your job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of, and as you say, it's protecting others to protect John because he needs John alive. John is threatened. Moya is part of protecting John ultimately because they want to be back on Moya and traveling safe. So it's perfectly in character for him but at the same time because it's a step removed it's kind of this like oh scorpius just did a thing (laughs) and i think this is something we talked about a couple episodes ago like the redemption of scorpius do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. we're like this is actually a moment where i am rooting for scorpius like him casually killing people to protect chiana and this random girl i'm like yeah i can get behind this you know, I can get behind yeah. the Scorpius that's willing to do the things he was willing to do to chase John on behalf of the peacekeepers for John and the crew. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And Yeah, for sure. And I mean, at the same time, again, I still do feel like the correct reaction to Scorpius is to kill him dead. But <laughs> I do think that this Scorpius is pretty badass. Yeah, but it's funny you mentioned that because Scorpius is literally the person that saves everybody, mm-hmm. right? So we have Rigel and Aaron still connected, and we have John and Sokozu still connected. And on the planet, while this is happening, par- the parallel plot on the planet is they need to go find the women revolutionaries and uh, steal the green and the yellow mollusks so that the doctor can make the special serum to have everything go back to normal, the cure. And so the doctor said hey i'm supposed to get a delivery of the mollusks but he gets shot and said in the shoulder he's still alive and so you guys got to go steal them now and this is where we have the girl power quote actually i want to play that for a little bit so you can see kind of the byplay going on here um and eventually we'll get to the scorpius point i promise um but this is the path to get there i should probably go alone no 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 i got it currency do we have the antidote just going for that. Oh, well, hurry up. This place reeks of antiseptic. Sikozu, we have a mission. I'm happy to go. Girl power. Girl, girl power, would you quit speaking English? Erin, be careful. Considering we're linked. I'd better go before the females try again. I'm going to miss this planet. <laughs> So I pulled that one strictly for the byplay amongst everybody because you have a little bit of everything, right? You have Mm -hmm. Aaron and John and their relationship because John is protective of Aaron. He doesn't want her going into danger. She's like, you know what? I'm better equipped to do this. One, I'm a better fighter. Two, I am a woman. So they're going to be more receptive to letting me in. So she goes. And then they have that whole speaking English thing where she's saying, girl power in English. And he's responding. And it's just really cute. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then you have Rigel being protective of Aaron, not because he likes Aaron, but because they are linked. I mean, he might because, you know, he likes her a little bit, but mostly because they're linked and he doesn't want to die. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot going on there. I do really like a lot of things in this quote because, like you said, it's like Rigel, who's on the one hand grown as a character, but on the other hand, still like me first, you know? And then also, I think it's interesting because this really shows that in the past, Aaron has tried to use Earthisms, mm-hmm. you know, in previous seasons, 
But this season, she's really been trying to learn English. And I think it's her way of trying to communicate with John. The fact that he's literally drugging himself to not be receptive to her, I think is like an interesting play on their relationship, you know? Because in the past, John was working really hard to learn her language and, you know, to learn the way the uncharted territories worked. And then now it's kind of a reverse position. Yeah, yeah. And then at the end there, you have John gagging the doctor, which brings us to the next scene, which I'm going to play because it's Rigel being hilarious and we need more Rigel being hilarious, um, where somebody walks in while they have basically kidnapped the doctor. Dr. Toomey. He's tied up right now. So what? So uh, why don't you have a seat and wait your turn? Tell the doctor that Hoak is here now. <clears throat> What's all the commotion? Who are you? Dr. Rigel. Toomey's at the Colin Convention. Uh, what seems to be the problem, hmm? My Zergen Bobs are playing up again. That's what you get for neglecting them. Take off your clothes. Here? Yes, for some preventive bloodletting. Most anyone can benefit from the removal of one excess bodily fluid or another. Inflamed zircombobs, you say? Well, I think we should take a look. Hmm? Take care of yourself. Hmm. What the hell's the matter with you? I'm operating. <laughs> I love that Rigel laughs at his own joke at the end. I hope that John is like, what are you doing? I'm like, he's saving your ass, John. What do you think he's doing? <laughs> because we don't often see Rigel take on the role play. Like, while John is, like, first answering the dude's question when he first arrives, and he's kind of caught this curtain pulled, and then Rigel kind of emerges from behind it, and then in the meantime, he's put on a smock and some gloves, and he's got the little doohickey thing on his eyes, like a magnifying glass, and he's, like, the mad scientist doctor, that he's just, like, ad-libbing, and it's great. I don't know. I was laughing the whole time throughout this scene. It's a good scene. I like it a lot. So then John and Rigel realize the girls are getting in trouble because the girls are getting beaten up. So then Rigel goes shopping and he gets them dresses and John's like, I don't like this color. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, we've kind of already discussed how we feel about John and Rigel dressing up. I think your point is good that we have to accept the Watsonian of this, which is that I don't see John or Rigel knowing how to actually dress up as a woman. Right. But at the same time, that scene is very... I don't know, frustrating for me because because you have John being so dismissive of wearing women's clothing, even though mm-hmm. it's even though it's like a disguise. And it's OK. It feels like like the typical male scripted macho toxic masculinity response to anything female related. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to wear a bra. You know, I'm not going to wear a dress. I'm not going to look good in the dress. It, it's just like this very classic response And I think that's what bugs me the most about John's response here. It is not to somebody who respects women's response, right? And it's just, that's what bugs me. It just feels like John is poo-pooing all the women's things just because they're women's things. Mm -hmm. And I think it has to do with how it's done rather than the fact that he does go through with it and is played for laughs. And I don't know, there's something really uncomfortable for me about it. Yeah, I will echo you in your discomfort with the whole scene. It's kind of... Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of my reaction to it. It's just kind of like a... Like John's not willing to be seen as anything other than masculine. Which is weird because his characterization has a lot of female encoded character traits. Like mm-hmm. he's in touch with his emotions. He's the one who's being the, the the emotion one of his duo with Aaron, you know? And it's it's a weird response that feels... I don't know if I would say out of character, but... It just doesn't sit well. It kind of does come out of nowhere, though, because we've seen John willing to play act before. You know, he does it Mm -hmm. often. And yeah, most of the time he is play acting as like the John Wayne. But at the same time, I just I would go as far to be like, it's a little bit out of character for him to not be willing to do anything to save Aaron, you know, Mm -hmm. and for him to, again, kind of be so clueless as to be like, we're just going to walk in as dudes. And I'm like, yeah. okay, but it's like a, 
It's like trying to like walk in as a dude to like some really hip club. Yeah, it's very exclusionary. You're going to have the heads of state there. And then all the random, the only random people are the women people Mm -hmm. there who are there to be, you know, ogled and danced with and probably taken off to a back room somewhere. And so I love the fact that it's Rigel who realizes this and Rigel who's like, you know, we have to go as women because that's the only way we're going to succeed and I'm going to succeed. And if you don't want to dress up as a woman and come, you don't have to come. I'll go by myself. I really love that moment from Rigel. And it's because, again, Rigel's self-serving. He wants to live. He wants to get the cure. But at the same time, he's like the one who's willing to do what it takes. Yeah. So now that John and... Rigel are at the party, dressed up as women, not, again, not really passing as women. I'm not sure how they got through the bouncers, but hand wave. (laughs) I guess Rigel could actually pass because, you know, his species does look almost identical, (laughs) except for the eyelashes. (laughs) Now that you mentioned the bouncer thing, I'm like, if this is a party of women run by the women revolutionaries, why wouldn't they have a list of all the women allowed in that are part of their secret society? Or a secret revolutionary society. You know what I mean? Actually, yeah. It does so. make zero sense that they would be able to get in at all. Because I'm sure that since tonight is the night of the coup, when they're literally going to feed the bad yeah. guys clams, I'm like, you know, you would kind of want to keep that yeah. tight. And also, it kind of sounds like this is also a little bit of like a prostitution place. Where I'm like, you wouldn't no. let randos in because you would want to know all of the prostitutes. Right. Exactly. Anyway, so more problems with this episode, but Rigel and John go into the party. John typically, as these stories always go, gets fondled and then threatens to kill the guy who fondled him. Meanwhile, you have Aaron and Sokozu tied up in the back room. They're being guarded by one of the women revolutionaries and their leader has said, okay, we have to keep them alive. We can't kill them because they have the mollusks. Because um, this was part of what Aaron and Sokozu explained when they tried to come and negotiate for buying the mollusks. And she says, okay, we have to wait for their counterparts to come and then we can catch their counterparts or just let them all die from the mollusks slowly poisoning them. She and her fellow revolutionaries go out to the floor to see if they can spot the people who Aaron and Sokozu are linked to. And she says when she leaves, like, give me 50 microts and then cut off one of their fingers because then there would be a pain reaction in the partner and they'd be able to identify so this is one of those scenes where I actually really, really like what it says about Aaron in this scene, because I feel like this is something we've come back to a couple times. Um, so here is them being threatened with having their fingers chopped off. And the at first, the woman points to Aaron. You. Not her. Something wrong. Headache. Volunteering? Yes. No. Leave her alone. I'm not here. She's nothing to do with this. Shut up. Fine. Are you all right? Floating. So there you have Sokozu and Aaron fighting over who gets to have their finger cut off, which is typical, right? Because it's something we've talked about that came up in John Quixote of like Aaron being super protective of everyone else on the crew, including now Sokozu, who is still relatively new, and being like, no, I brought you here. Don't volunteer. I should be the one who who gets the finger cut off because I'm the big bad peacekeeper and you are the person that I need to protect, Sokozu. Mm-hmm. And Sokozu is like, no, cut off my finger because as you recall from, what was it? one of the early episodes of the season with the dog Crichton kicks that Sukozu has detachable body parts that can be reattached to her. And she points this out to Aaron in a later scene, but I just really like the, what that says about Aaron, because remember in John Quixote, that was one of the things that, that twigged John to the fact that he was still in the video game and that Aaron was not really Aaron was because she was like, forget everybody else. The two of us should just go. Mm -hmm. And that's really not something that Aaron would do. And we see another instance of her being protective here. Yeah, that's a really good point. And also, I think you're right that it is nice to see Sokozu kind of be coming into the fold as if not a crew Mm -hmm. member, because she's still definitely aligned with Scorpius. But 
at least she's kind of coming into the, you know, inside circle of people that Aaron is willing to protect, you know? Yeah. And also, I, I like that Sokozu is also equally as protective of Aaron, you know? Because, yeah, Sokozu mm-hmm. can reattach her limbs, but I, it's also painful to lose a finger, yeah. you know? And also maybe, yeah. you know, she might not get that finger back. So... I don't know. It felt good to kind of see both of these characters beginning to be protective of each other. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And you could hear how painful it was because we heard John reacting to getting Sokozu's finger being cut off because the two of them are linked. And he's dancing with, by the way, the dude who came to see the doctor earlier, who does recognize him, by the way. That's this whole little subplot of them being awkwardly romantic with each other and John trying not to be and... I don't know. We don't have to talk about it. We've talked a lot about the <laughs> the problems of the representation of, of women and men representing women. Anyway, Rigel has found the mollusks. And about this time, everybody starts going into shock from the mollusks being separated. Like, it's been too long without the cure. And they're start- their bodies are starting to break mm-hmm. down. And now we finally get back to my original point about Scorpius, who is back on the ship. And he's like, okay... We know what's causing it, these bacteria in the clams. We need to give them more time. So I am going to eat the green and the yellow clams and share, become linked to everybody and, you know, take some of that psychic pressure off of everybody else's failing bodies. And I don't know about you, but when he goes into his cell again and he has like these two little, I don't know, sticks holder Mm -hmm. things and he puts a clam on each one and then he ceremoniously kneels between them and then he pulls them down to the floor it just felt felt really unnecessary it's just like just eat the freaking food dude it was a very weird scene because then later the sticks are on fire so it kind of gives like this impression (laughs) that he's doing some sort of like ritual which i'm like what is the ritual for eating clams that other people have eaten exactly i mean in the end him eating them however kind of well And then also, like, the whole framing is, like, they know they're on a timeline. Like, he knows that everybody is not answering comms. The likely reason is that they're all incapacitated by the clams. And so he's, like, going to take forever to eat them? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, like, go eat it. Yeah, it's just really drawn out. And the music is all swelling and being very important. I don't know. It was just a weird choice. Yeah. So then he eats the clams. Everybody gets a little bit of time off. The girls manage to escape. John Mm -hmm. is like in the middle and they're trying to like, okay, we have to create a distraction so we can get out because there's bouncers at the doors. But I'm like, the bouncers are literally just women in like flowy dresses that are not carrying weapons. (laughs) So I am kind of like just go through them but whatever so then john's like hey do any of you girls have any like this under your skirt and he like pulls up his skirt and he pulls out his guns because ha 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 male penises are funny yes and actually guns yeah so he's shooting above everybody's head so he's not actually shooting at people but he's causing mayhem and panic they storm out and aaron still has her weapon by the way john has two guns and aaron has hers which why wasn't she disarmed when she was captured so, or maybe they found it when they were running out. Let's pretend they found it because that's the only explanation that makes sense. I like that explanation better. Anyway, Rigel has the mollusks. They all get out. They all get back to Moya. And Rigel has one last moment with the doctor that I'm going to play because, again, Rigel hilarity is the best part of this episode. That's it. Just one more bite. Mm-mm. Oh, good. Oh, thank you for preparing the cures. I'll leave this mollusk in the garbage. Outside. But it will be consumed by drottle flies or a wild flimmish. Can't do that to me. I risk to differ. Mmm, a nice mollusk. What's that? One more mouthful. Yeah, so it's kind of twisted because Rigel is force-feeding a half of a mollusk to uh, to the doctor who's tied up still, and then he's just going to leave it out for whatever bugs and animals to eat it, so then he'll die probably. But I kind of can't blame Rigel here because all of this chaos was caused by this doctor trying to extort money from them, who which was a pretty crappy thing to do to these 
people. Especially because <laughs> he's like, I demand half a million credits for each one of you. And there's like six of them affected. I'm like, why does he think yeah. that they have that money? They are not rich people. They yeah. are clearly like space pirates at best. Or like space <laughs> hobos at best, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I just, there's a little bit of catharsis with that scene. And the fact that Rigel is also willing to just, you know, give this long drawn out murder to this guy also pleases me on some level. Well, I just like it when <laughs> Rigel is, is ruthless. It reminds me a lot of what he did to that one alien in Infinite Possibilities part one i want to say or the episode before infinite possibilities part one but the one where they've captured the bad guy and you know they aren't getting any information out of him and then rigel goes in and tortures the information out of him i'm like yeah it's infinite possibilities yeah, yeah. it's like rigel is the character that's willing to do the dirty work and in this case the dirty mm -hmm. work is getting revenge from this doctor <laughs> that's going around blackmailing people yeah so that's kind of near the end. And then um, we have a last scene of Sukozu and John and Rigel and Aaron sitting together in the maintenance bay and doing the cure. Meanwhile, Norianti and Dargo have finally finished theirs and they have very different opinions of how long it took forever or just a dash, you know, not long at all, says Norianti. It was three hours, they both say. But point being is that now they have to, to do this cure and sit with each other. And Sukozu at this point points out that, hey, Scorpius saved us all. Scorpius, meanwhile, we gets the, la gets the last scene of the episode and he regurgitates the green and yellow mollusks and doesn't have to go through the cure. So I'm guessing there's something to do with his hybrids physiology or Scarin physiology that is letting him purge himself and no longer be affected by the mollusks that caused all this trouble in the first yeah. place. It's a little hand-wavy. I don't know. There's no explanation. It felt very hand-wavy. It felt very much like, I think a better scene would have been all of them having to hold hands with Scorpius. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, totally. I think that, that would have been a and more he, satisfying scene. <laughs> now, where would they have held hands with him? Because he wears gloves. So would he have taken off his gloves? Would they have had to like open up his suit somehow? Or would they just have hands on his face? I don't know. I think they would have. I think we would have had to do the suits because I can't see John touching Scorpius's face. Although I guess Sakozu could have for their, you know, like little yeah. triad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that kind of speaks though to like the fact that this episode felt a little bit disconnected. Like even though all of these elements were technically connected, it felt very like the Scorpius thing felt felt very separate from everything that was happening on mm -hmm. the planet. And even the things that were happening on the planet felt separate from each other. Do you know what I mean? I don't I don't know how to explain it better yeah. than that. Yeah. No, I know. I think it might be go to the fact that there's just so many holes and there's just an odd discomfort with a lot of how they decided to tell the story and the cross-dressing and stuff like that. That is just yeah, it hangs together and it's got some really funny moments and lots of little character things, but as far as episodes go, like, it's not my favorite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would you give it? Uh, two. That's being a little nice. You know, it's not as bad as some of the, the really bad ones from season one. So it's definitely above that, but kind of at the two level. And I didn't enjoy it as much as uh, Love is a Many Splendored Thing, which it, I think it felt most reminiscent of in terms of, you know, there was stuff that happened. It was funny in parts, but there was really no like character arc holding it together mm -hmm. unless you count Scorpius's like three scenes I was also th I was also really reminded of our last kind of coup episode or real coup episode not actually the last yeah. episode prefect murder yeah I mean a prefect murder where I'm like that one at least everything kind of felt coherent like it felt very connected or even that season 3 episode um what was it Thanks, Thanks for, sharing. for sharing. Yeah, that one where, you know, that also, that had more characters too. And that still managed to feel like there was one narrative arc going on. Yeah. And this one, I felt like there were like little jumps of narrative arc that were happening. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I, I think that I would give this like a two, maybe also just kind of like, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't bad. 
Like it wasn't awful. No. But I don't think I, I forget what I gave a 2.5 to recently, but I was like, it wasn't quite as good as that either. You know? Yeah. Well, it was a prefect murder and what was the one before that? Um I shrank therefore I am. I liked I shrank therefore I yeah. am. Like I had issues with it, but it was yeah. fun. Right. Yeah, and this is definitely of the of the trio. I think of these as a trio just because they're all three in a row and they're standalones that this is the weakest of those. Mhm. So Oh yeah, for certain. Yeah. So in Wardrobe Watch, we have everyone in their usual outfits until the cross-dressing scene where we have Rigel in kind of a wedding gown white kind of costume and he's got even a veil and uh, you have John Crichton in a purple velvet dress kind of deal uh, with really long brown hair wig. It doesn't really work. It looks like he never brushes his hair. <laughs> <laughs> also, the the mechanic, when she actually at the end reveals she pulls off her wig, her wig is short hair and then she has actual in real life long brown hair and I was like, dude, why don't you just keep your regular hair short? Why do you need to have long hair? Like I said, the mechanic was like, I'm like, if you're going to have a character passing as a male, at least do something interesting like stands from season one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Have like a character that yeah, genuinely I'm... looks male. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. Know. So yeah, so that's the episode. Uh, that's what I got. Next week, we have Unrealized Reality, which is actually one of my favorite episodes of the mm-hmm. show. So please stay tuned for that. Uh, we're entering into a set of really good episodes of season four. We are Farscape Friday Podcast on Twitter, Dreamwith, and at gmail.com. Please hit us up in any of those places. 